In his book, The Second Evangelical Awakening, J. Edwin Orr recounts a revival that God sent to Northern Ireland in 1859. He says this, The townsfolk of Coleraine witnessed some of the most amazing scenes in the whole movement in Ireland. A schoolboy, under deep conviction of sin, seemed so incapable of continuing his studies that the kindly teacher sent him home in the company of another boy already converted. On the way home, the two boys noticed an empty house and entered it to pray. At last, the unhappy boy found peace and returned immediately to the classroom to tell his teacher, saying, I am so happy. I have the Lord Jesus in my heart. This innocent testimony had its effect on the class, and boy after boy slipped outside. The master, standing on something to look out of the window, observed the boys kneeling in prayer around the schoolyard, each one apart. The master was overcome, and he asked the converted schoolboy to go to comfort them. Soon the whole school was in strange disorder, and clergymen were sent for and remained all day dealing with seekers after peace, schoolboys, schoolgirls, teachers, and parents and neighbors, the premises being thus occupied until 11 o'clock that night. That on 7 June 1859, an open-air meeting was held on Fairhill to hear one of the two converts. So many thousands attended that it was deemed advisable to divide the crowd into separated meetings, each addressed by an evangelical minister of one denomination or another. The people stood motionless until the very last moment when an auditor cried out in distress. Several others likewise became prostrated, bewildering the ministers, who having no similar experience previously, scarce knew how to help the distressed in soul and body. The clergymen spent all night in spiritual ministrations, and when the sun rose, the following day was spent in the same manner. It's an amazing account of God's grace pouring out His Spirit that people might feel a conviction of sin and respond in faith and repentance to the gospel. And as God's people, as Christians, we should hear that and it should move us in our, in our hearts and we should, we should want to cry out, do it again, Lord, do it again. And yet as powerful, as amazing as that account is, it pales in comparison to what we are going to see this morning. Commentator Hugh Martin rightly says this, a great and proud city, smitten into the most profound humiliation from the greatest of its inhabitants and to the least of them, from the king on the throne to the meanest citizen, is a spectacle to which history affords no parallel. Cities and countries and communities, how oftentimes, with not little unanimity, given themselves to humiliation and fasting. But there is no event on record that can be compared with the fast and repentance of Nineveh. This is what we want to see this morning. The miraculous conversion of an entire pagan city as they hear the message of God and respond in repentance and faith. Then we're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. We want to begin by just looking at the first few verses. I would encourage you to follow along as I read beginning at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, and the greatest of them, from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
If there's one word that characterizes our passage this morning, it's the word repentance. For this is what we see in one of the most unique ways, an entire city turning in repentance to God. And from this, frankly, amazing unique experience of repentance, we want to see something of an example for the repentance of our own hearts. How should we return to God when we have sinned? This is what we want to see today. But before we begin, certainly the question must be asked, what, what is repentance? I mean, it's okay to talk about it, but first we must define it. What is it? And several people have defined it over the years. Some definitions have been very helpful. Others have not been so helpful. In the end, no matter how it's worded, repentance comes down to this, turning away from sin toward the living God. It's a reorienting of our lives away from the things our sinful hearts crave toward a life lived in the way that God has made us to live. Such a reversal always begins with an acknowledgement of the reality of our sin. And that is what we see even in this passage this morning. Three things that we want to see about repentance from our text. Three ways in which we ourselves need to understand how we can go about repenting too. The first thing is this. We see the sinful reality. The sinful reality of the lives of the Ninevites. We just said that a reversal, a, a, a repentance, a genuine repentance always begins with an acknowledgement of the reality of sin, and this was true for Nineveh as well. There is sin, deep sin among their people, and we see this reality, this sinful reality in two ways. First of all, it is an evident reality. It is an evident reality. God tells Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. What message is that? Well, we see it in verse 4, don't we? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, why did God send Jonah with that message? Well, again, our text tells us back in chapter 1, the evil of the city had come up before God. There was a, re a reality of sin in Nineveh that was evident to them as well as to God. Well, what kind of sin was it? I mean, how bad was this place? Well, history gives us some information about uh, what this city was like, but the prophet Nahum gives us God's perspective on their sin. In chapter 3, the prophet says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glintering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples, with her charms. So here's the scene. A violent city full of endless bloodshed with no mercy, no quarter. From other sources we know the Ninevites held uh, the value of human life to be very small. The conquered enemies would be mutilated, sometimes skinned alive, and apparently so thick was the violence that at times people were literally stumbling over dead bodies in the street. All the while in the background is rampant sexual immorality. If Bay City is known for its bars, Nineveh was known for its brothels. Their sin was evident to them and to everyone else. There was no hiding it. And as we think about that, the evident reality of their sin, we have to pause and ask, is our sin evident to us? It would be easy for us to, to read about, to even go and see Nineveh and say, wow, look at the amazing sin that's there. It's so, so obvious. 
But what about our own hearts? Is our sin obvious to us, as obvious as it is to God? Back when I was in seminary, I heard someone say something that was so obvious and yet so profound, I've never forgotten it. And yet, seemingly, about something completely trivial. It was about movies. And the comment was about the difference in the way so-called conservative Christians watch movies and so-called liberal Christians watch movies. Here's the comment. Generally speaking, conservative Christians refuse to see movies that contain sex and excessive language, while liberal Christians refuse to see movies with excessive violence and don't mind the sex and language. Now, for the most part, I think that's right. Having talked with liberal Christians, I think that's, that's probably right. Although today I would say, frankly, as conservatives, our standards are probably slipping when it comes to sex and language. Nevertheless, for the most part, we, you never hear someone say, oh, you shouldn't see that movie. There's a lot of violence in it. I mean, I've never heard that from somebody. I mean, other pastors, other Christians, hey, how's that movie? I've never once heard someone say, I heard them say all the time, there's no sex, there's not much language. I've never heard them say, there's not much violence either. Now, what's my point? Well, my point is to say this. Some Christians have no problem seeing people brutally hacked up or blown up on screen as long as they don't show sex or use the F word. But God says He abhors violence. Now, my point is not to say, don't go see movies. Understand, that, that's not my point. I'm simply drawing out an example from Nineveh itself to say, sometimes, even as good conservative evangelical Christians, we are blind to the sin that is evident in our lives. The things that God says should not be a part of our lives, we don't think so much about. But rather because of tradition or culture, whatever else, we have an idea about what godliness looks like. And the question is, question is, what is the sin that's in our life? And if we cannot come to a place where we can first identify our sin, guess what? We will never come to a place where we can repent of it. Genuine repentance necessitates that we understand the depth and the reality of our sin. Nineveh was a sinful place. The Ninevites were sinful people. And that sinful reality was not just evident, but it also meant their doom. This is the second thing that we see about the sinful reality. It was a doomed reality. Our text says, Jonah called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Realize this isn't just a prophecy concerning some foreign nation coming into Nineveh. This is about the impending judgment of God. Nineveh wouldn't be overturned because it was lacking in military strength or political savvy or strong economy. It was their depth of sin that put them under the wrath of God. And it would be that wrath, powerful, just, unrelenting wrath, that would be the thing that overturned the city of Nineveh. And in a minute, we'll see the response of the people to such a message. But, but what, is the, what would the typical response to that kind of message be today? Well, I mean, we don't have to guess, do we? I mean, we just saw it a few weeks ago. Somebody saying, a date has been set. Time is short and judgment will come. And what was the response? Laughter? Mocking? Jokes on late night television? A shrug as people walk down the street? Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Mocking and indifference were the only response. And frankly, let's be honest, some of that was because of the circumstances of the message, right? I mean, the messenger has an effect on the message and how we hear it. Nevertheless, 
as much error as there was in that man's message, there was also a large measure of truth. For though Nineveh was told a day has been set in which physical judgment is going to come upon you, God has also made clear, though we don't know when, we cannot know the time, the place, the date. The reality is the whole world has the clock ticking over its head. He has appointed a day of judgment in which all of His wrath will be poured out on sin. Now, this is the Ninevite situation. It is also our situation. They have an evident sinfulness to their lives, and that sin is causing an impending judgment. What's to be done? What is the solution for this dilemma? In a word, repent. Repent. Isn't that the first thing that Jesus himself preached? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we see the sinful reality. We also see the necessary repentance. That's the second thing that we see, the necessary repentance. Jonah called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, frankly, that seems like an awfully short sermon. And I know some of you are jealous, perhaps even this morning. But don't get any ideas, okay? Partly because that's probably not all that he said. And we'll, I'll tell you a little bit why I think that later. But it's probably a summary of the message that Jonah gave. We don't know for sure. But we do know the effect of Jonah's message. Nineveh repented. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now we've been talking about repentance, but what does it look like? Well, here our passage tells us, and we need to make clear that repentance is not the same as regret. Repentance is not the same as remorse. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, there is a kind of regret, there is a kind of remorse that, that is godly and leads to repentance. But there is another kind that's worldly. And he says the only thing that leads to is death. The only thing it leads to is death. What's the difference? Well, this is what we see here. The first is this. Real repentance is a believing repentance. It's a believing repentance. Uh, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. First of all, this is why I think Jonah preached more than eight words that we saw earlier. They know there is a God whom they have offended, and there is a God to whom they must turn in repentance. They believe the message of the prophets. Now think about just how astonishing that is in the context of the story, first of all. Here is Jonah. He comes in from the shore, having been vomited up by a great fish, then travels literally hundreds of miles to Nineveh. Nineveh was not a coastal city. Get your study Bible out. Look at the map that's in there. It's landlocked. It's way inland. So here is Jonah. How did he get there? By camel? Did he hitch a ride? Did he walk the whole way? We have no idea. All we know is uh, he's, he's traveling hundreds of miles to get to Nineveh from the coast. What's been happening during that travel time? I mean, there's no monorail. There's no, you know, speed train. Uh, it's a length of time. What's been happening those days in which he is traveling? Has he been telling people who he is and where he's from and what his message is going to be about? Did the Assyrian people who worship the sea god Dagon, were they out fishing that day and see this man spewed out by a great fish, flop up onto the beach, get up and begin heading towards Nineveh and spread the word, here is this amazing man who's literally come out of the sea. He must be here to give us some message. We don't know. We'll ask Jonah one day in the new heavens and the new earth. All we know is this. When Jonah begins to preach, there is no violence against him. There is no mocking of his message. There's not even a sense of indifference. There's only belief. In fact, the word believe is put first in the sentence of the original Hebrew in order to heighten the immediacy of the response. 
He didn't come and say, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And they said, wow, let's think about that for a while. We'll get back to you. I got to consider what this means. No, they believed. It's an amazing response. They believed the message of Jonah, that they were sinners, that there was a God, the God of Israel, the maker of all things, to whom they were accountable. And they believed judgment would, be, would come because of their wickedness. Loved ones, this is the beginning of all true repentance, believing God and the truth of His message. To confess sin means to say the same thing. Now, what does that mean? Same thing as what? Well, it means to say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. That's worthy of eternal damnation. That the smallest sin required the sacrifice of Christ to make you right with Him. The beginning of repentance is coming to believe the truth about God and your sin. But it's more than that. We also see there displayed, a, there is a humble repentance that takes place. A humble repentance Jonah preaches, the people believed, then, the rest of verse 5, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. Now, fasting and sackcloth were common signs of humbling or mourning in the ancient world. But what's more impressive is the statement that everyone did it. Everyone did it from the greatest of them to the least of them. I mean, imagine the scene in your mind's eye. The word is spreading throughout the city, perhaps even before Jonah arrives. Word of mouth is traveling in advance of him. And people are beginning to believe. They are, they are conforming their lives to the message they have heard. They're responding appropriately because just as the message is going forth, the Spirit of God is also going forth, bending wills, breaking hearts, bringing people to an awareness of themselves and God like they've never had before. And suddenly the king begins to hear of this. Oh, king, your people are mourning. They're grieving. Why? They're, they're fasting. They're not eating. They're not in the marketplace. They're covered in sackcloth. They're sitting in ashes. Why? Why are they doing this? Why are my people doing this? Are they displeased with my reign? Are they displeased with my leadership? Why are they doing this? Because a prophet has said that there is a one true God and He's going to bring judgment on us because of our sins. What is the response of the king going to be? He's the most powerful man in the nation. He's seen war and wealth. He answers to no one but himself. He hears the message of the prophet and he has a choice. He can remain resolute in his pride and his confidence in himself and his false gods or he can join his people. It's by the merciful hand of God the king rises from the throne shedding off his royal robes, the symbol of his power and authority, exchanging it for coarse sackcloth of a man in grief. No longer exalted above his people, he slumps down into the ashes of some long dead fire, humbled under the weight of his sin and the sin of his people. True repentance is evidenced by humility. That means coming to a place where you acknowledge God is God and you are not. God is God and you are not. There is a response that needs to be had that needs to be made before Him when the reality of your sin is made clear in your mind. You've offended the one true God. 
the maker and sustainer of all things. When the reality of that soaks in, there can be no response but to be left in the dust of your own soul. But there is hope. There is hope. This is the last thing that we see about this scene of repentance from our text. We see the divine rescue. The divine rescue. We've seen the sinful reality. We've seen the necessary repentance and now we see the divine rescue. The title of our message is When God Comes to Town. And He doesn't just come to judge, He also comes to save, to rescue these people from the impending judgment. First, we see the rescue that He gives is an undeserved rescue. It's an undeserved rescue. The king has joined his people, all the people of the city in fasting and mourning over their sin and the coming judgment, but he goes farther than that. Look at verse 7. He issued a proclamation and published to Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them all call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king calls for an official declaration of the fast. Not just of people either, but of every living thing in the city. You can imagine people of a different kind of PETA group. You know, I'm a member of one kind of PETA group. People eating tasty animals, that's me. I have the official lifetime membership card. But then, then there is the group that say, oh, no, you can't eat that. You can just imagine them. Oh, they're, they're, they're torturing these poor animals. Well, they think Judgment Day is coming. They're going to be wiped out. It doesn't matter if these animals eat or not. Okay? Uh, I mean, there's not a long-term vision of life going on at this moment. All they know is uh, God is going to send some kind of judgment upon us. But more than that, Tullian Tavigian points, I think rightly, even the livestock in Nineveh, bawling and bleeding, were forced from, uh, from forced hunger and thirst will share in this citywide plea to God as the people call out mightily to Him. If there, if there was ever a, a thought that you might forget the reality of the situation, the direness, the urgency of the message that has been delivered and the need to respond, then it would be going into a house and hearing in the back room the baby crying out for mother's milk but receiving none. The animals out back, ewing and bleeding, calling out, wanting some food, wanting some water, but getting none. And the cries of all of society coming up, reminding you that you must cry out as well, believing God, sorrowful over your sin, from which judgment rightly is coming. And yet what does the king say? If our sin has brought this judgment upon us, then maybe, perhaps, we're not sure, but, but possibly if we give up the sin, judgment may not come. This is exactly what he does. He says that they are to give up their sinful ways, that they are to renounce them, that more than just fast and, and cover themselves in sackcloth, they are to renounce the very lifestyle that brought God's judgment upon them. Friends, repentance can't be hollow. It can't be meaningless. It can't be lip service. True repentance is more than that. J.I. Packer is surely right when he says this, repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life. 
It's seeing in your mind the reality of your sin and what it means for your relationship with God. But more than that, then, you don't just get up and walk away and do nothing. That's not repentance. Repentance is a changed life in light of your encounter with the living God. But notice what he says. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There is no expectation God will repent. There is no assurance that he must do this thing. There is only an acute awareness that they don't deserve any pardon from God. God may relent, but nothing says he has to. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we have an assurance that he will relent. And here we see that the rescue given to them is an expected rescue. It's an expected rescue. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Why did He do this? Why did He spare them? Did He have to? No. He didn't have to. They were sinners who deserved judgment. So why did He do it? Why can I call this an expected rescue? How can I say that if they knew what we know now, they, they should have expected God to relent and to rescue them from His judgment? Because that's who God is. Do, do you remember the foundational verse, verses that we said lie behind this book? Exodus 34, verses 6-7. through seven. God reveals Himself to Moses and the people of Israel this way, I am Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is who God is, a God who justly punishes sinners, yet one who is also gracious and merciful and willing to forgive. More than just willing, one who does forgive, he says. Now what's the difference between Nineveh and so many other nations and cities that were wiped out in the Old Testament because of God's judgment? The difference is this, one thing, repentance. Repentance. Last week we told the story of D.A. Carson's friend in graduate school who sinned grievously by, uh, by just being obsessed with the fidelity of his wife and yet who would go every other week to the brothel. And yet he said, well, of course God will forgive me. What's the difference between him and Nineveh? Repentance! They were sorry for their sin. They turned away from their sin. They knew the reality that judgment was theirs. It was, it was what they deserved. He reveled in it. He gloried in his sin. But the Ninevites saw the horror of their ways and turned from them to the living God. They repented, and to all who repent, to all who repent the promise is the same. God will rescue them from coming judgment. But that doesn't that leave us with a problem? The Ninevites said they were guilty. God said they were guilty. God says He will by no means clear the guilty. Does that mean they weren't really guilty? No, it doesn't. They were guilty. And yet God is faithful to His Word. He is faithful to His character. He could forgive them because Jesus Christ came to be guilty for them and for us. Ultimately, this is why Jonah was forgiven for his sin. This is why the Ninevites were forgiven for their sin. Not because they deserved it as human beings. Not because God owed it to them nor because they earned it by their repentance. But let's be clear. Make no mistake, your repentance from sin does not earn God's forgiveness. 
It is not, that is not the cause of your salvation. Oh, they said they were sorry and stopped doing it. Therefore, I'll forgive them. No, you're guilty. Even if you do not persist in your guilt, even if you do not persist in your sin, you've already committed the act and stand guilty before God. It's only because someone else stood guilty in their place, in our place, that they could be forgiven, that they could be rescued from the judgment to come. Jesus endured the judgment of God for sinners. He was guilty for all who would look to Him, believing that they are sinners in need of a Savior, humbly acknowledging that He alone can save them from the fate they deserve, turning from their sin with faith in Him. Philip Bliss in his hymn captures it well. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. Loved ones, we can talk about great revivals and amazing movements of God, even as we have seen here in Nineveh, and we can and should rejoice in that. But in every case, the miracle of such events begins in the same place, the turning of wicked hearts away from sin to a great and glorious God. Whether it's the transformation of a city or the renovation of a single person, this is the essential path of salvation and spiritual maturity in Christ, repentance. Repentance. Father, may that be true of us. May we live a life of repentance. May we live a life of acknowledging our sin and turning away from it, believing you and your promises, trusting you, loving you enough to leave behind our wicked rebellion and follow your ways. God, not to earn salvation, but because salvation has already been earned for us in Christ. Father, it is to Him we look in faith, seeing not just the reality of our evil hearts, but the abundance of your mercy and willingness to forgive. God, keep Him before our eyes that we might live a life of repentance. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.